The reading is from John chapter 17, which is on page 1085 in the Bible under the benches in front of you. Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that you take them out, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. Evening. Thank you for coming. Good to see you all. Um, Thank you uh, to Joanna for reading John 17 for us. And um, if you're a regular member of St. John's, um, don't worry too much because um, you'll know, whereas the CBCF people will not know, that we've been doing uh, a three-week series on John 17. Um, We've covered uh, Jesus praying for glory and Jesus praying for sanctification and holiness and Jesus praying for uh, those who are not yet his followers. Uh, uh, But um, for those of you from St. John's who are thinking, oh, we're going to get it all over again, um, hopefully we're going to come at it from a slightly different angle. And um, uh, for those of you who are not from St. John's, you can always go to the St. John's website and catch up with what you've missed, (laughs) if if you're inclined to. Um, This evening, I want us to look at this passage and... uh, and take us back through one or two Old Testament scriptures as well, um, thinking about being the people of God, being the people of God. Uh, Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we come to commemorate this evening, before we commemorate the events of tomorrow, help us to understand your desire and choose to be a part of your desire, that is, to be your people in these days. For your sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Jesus prays in this passage, and uh, you'll appreciate that this is towards the end of the Lord's Supper, which took place on what we now call Maundy Thursday. Um, Jesus prays for what is most important to him. And what he prays for essentially are those who already know him, and those who don't already know him. Uh, And he prays for those two groups to have or who have already eternal life. Those who have eternal life, verse 2, and those who don't yet have eternal life, verse 20. Which prompts the question, well, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? And thankfully, Jesus tells us in this prayer, He says, eternal life is to know the one true God and Jesus the Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know him. And John tells us of this in other places as well. Elsewhere, he says, John 3 verses 15 and 16, for example, that whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, has eternal life. 
and John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, the Son being Jesus. In fact, according to my gizmo on my mobile phone, um, it tells me that on at least 12 different occasions in his gospel, John says that eternal life is to believe, that is to trust in Jesus. But this is not simply an intellectual assent, but it is an active trust, putting our active trust in him. And I wonder, I wondered, those who are cleverer than me can put me right if necessary, but I wondered if it was just a coincidence that this topic comes up here at the Last Supper. I don't think so. I don't think it's a coincidence. You see, God has always wanted a people to be with him. He has always wanted his people. Let's pick a few highlights. We can't start at Genesis and make it all the way through to John tonight. Let's pick a few highlights. Let's go back to Genesis 3. All right? In the beginning, God created people in his own image. And so... People and God should always have walked together in the garden in the cool of the day. That's the desire. That's what it was all about. But, as you know, people chose to do their own thing. People chose to go their own way. And we haven't got time to cover it, but if you know your Bible at all, you'll know that people choosing to do their own thing and go their own way is a kind of a recurring theme throughout the Bible. Consequently, or subsequently rather, God made covenants, God made agreements with all sorts of groups of people down through the centuries. God always wanting a people who he could love, who he could bless, and who would be faithful to him and do his will and care for his world. Let's just pick one or two. Abraham is one. God calls Abraham. Abraham obeys. He leaves home. He goes to a country. He doesn't know where it is. But he's following God, he's trusting God, and sometime after his arrival, God says to him, will you sacrifice your son for me? And Abraham obeys. But Isaac is saved by God's intervention. God supplying a substitute, the substitute ram, the substitute sheep that will substitute for Isaac in the sacrifice. But as a result of Abraham's faithfulness, as a result of Abraham's obedience, God says to him, I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to all people. Because Abraham obeyed, God says all nations will be blessed. And that promise is repeated through Isaac and Jacob too, down through the generations. And these people become God's own people. Notice that God's people have a role. They have a role to be a blessing and to pass, or to be blessed, to have a blessing, to be a blessing by passing that blessing on 
to others. Which, if we skip forward several handfuls of pages in our Bibles, brings us neatly to Moses. Exodus chapter 3 or so. God calls Moses at the burning bush. He says, go to Egypt because I have seen the affliction of, of who? I've seen the affliction of my people, God says. These are my people. God cares for his people. He's concerned for his people. He wants to rescue them. So he sends Moses to Egypt. Why? What's he going to do? Well, actually, God spells out his purpose very specifically. God tells Moses, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, if you wanted to look it up, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, God tells Moses specifically what he, God, is going to do through Moses. He says, I will bring you out. I will set you free from under the burden of the Egyptians. One. I will deliver you from their bondage. Two. I will redeem you with my outstretched arms. Three. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Four. I will bring you out, set you free. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And verse 7 continues with the result of this. Then they will know that I am the Lord your God. God's promise of what he was going to do, he was going to make them in the end his own people so that they would know him. So Moses goes to Egypt, he confronts Pharaoh, and at every stage of the, um, shall we call it a negotiation, at every stage of the negotiation, God has referred to the Israelites as, my people, let my people go. Ten times, and at least eight other occasions when he talks about my people. God has a people who are his own. Jump on a few chapters to chapter 12, and we get to the Passover being instituted. The lamb without blemish, without spot. The blood on the upright and the lintel of the door. The people being ready to go, but for the moment anyway, staying under the blood so that when God sees it, he will pass over. And it's the Passover that Jesus is remembering on this night. Why? Because in Exodus twelve fourteen, God says to Moses, this day will be a memorial to you. It should be celebrated perpetually, forever. Did they celebrate it perpetually? Well, no, I'm afraid they didn't. The people disobeyed God so often, you remember, that's the recurring theme we talked about earlier. And so often and so long that eventually they're taken away into exile. And actually, it's not until Ezra's day, when they return from exile and they rebuild the temple, that they reinstitute the annual Passover. Which brings us, jumping on a few chapters, to Jesus' day. What's the significance of Passover for him and us? 
At the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, 29 and 36, John the Baptist says, look, pointing to Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why a lamb if not the Passover lamb? Not just a Passover lamb, but the Passover lamb. You will have realized, I guess, that there was death in every house in Egypt. Did you realize that? There was death in every house in Egypt. Either the death of the firstborn or the death of the lamb. The lamb was the substitute for the firstborn. The lamb died and the blood went on the door and that was the substitute for those who sheltered under the blood. Now the perfect lamb has come, the once for all lamb, the one who substituted for hundreds of lambs who died on the altar daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, but we are told in the scriptures The sacrifices that could never take away sin. But now this lamb comes and dies for the sin of the whole world. Would they have had lamb at the Last Supper? Yes, certainly they would. It's Passover after all. It's a remembrance of what God has done bringing his people out of Egypt. It's a remembrance of God keeping the promises he made. It's always good to remember God's promises, isn't it? I wonder if we do. I know I don't as often as I should. But here is a celebration around a meal with lamb that remembers the promises that God has made. Do you remember? I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people and be your God. Four promises. Four promises that over the centuries became enshrined in the Passover meal itself as four glasses of wine. Two glasses of wine that are drunk before the Passover meal proper two glasses of wine that are drunk after the Passover meal proper. If you like, think of them as ceremonial cups, a bit like wedding toasts. Just get my notes in the right order. And if you've been at St. John's, certainly other places as well, I'm sure, you'll remember that it is the third cup of wine, not the two before the meal but the first one after the meal that Luke tells us in chapter 22 20 he specifically says that Jesus took the cup after supper it's not just a throwaway remark about what time of evening it was of the four cups of wine it's the one after supper that Jesus took and said this is the new covenant sealed with my blood What does it stand for? It stands for the promise that says, I will redeem you with outstretched arms. Exactly what Jesus was going to do the following day on the cross. It's the cup of wine that comes to us in the communion table. This is the new covenant in my blood. We're not told specifically 
but it might have been, I suggest, that it was during the taking of the fourth cup of wine at that Passover meal. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, that perhaps Jesus prayed the prayer that we have read. The prayer for his current disciples, for his not yet disciples, praying for those people that God has always wanted. What does he pray? He prays, you'll have noticed, because it gets repeated quite often, that they would be united. United with each other, of course, but above all, that they would be united with him and the Father. That they may be one as you and I are one, he says. That we would literally be God's own people and he would be our God. If you've got the passage open, you might think, what else do we discover? What is it that Jesus prays for his people? Verse 2, that they, that we have eternal life. Verse 3, that they, we, are to know God. Verses 6 and 9, that they, we, are given by the Father to Jesus. We're a gift. Verses 6 to 9 again, that they, we, belong to God. Jesus says, these, Father, are yours. Verse 6, that we would be obedient to his word. Verses 11 and 15, they, we, are protected under the power of God's name from the evil one. Verses 11 and 21, that they, we, are united with each other and are one with God. 13, that they, we, have the joy of the Lord. 14, that they, we, are, will, be hated by the world. 18, that they, we, are sent into the world. 21, that they, we, have a purpose that the world may believe. 23, that they, we, are loved by God. We have eternal life. We know God. We are given by God to Jesus and to himself that we are obedient, protected, united, joyful, hated by the world, sent and have a purpose and are loved. Being God's own people starts with being set free from the power of sin delivered from its bondage, redeemed by outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. Paul says we have been bought with a price by believing and trusting in all that Jesus has done for us. Have we started that journey with those things, being saved by Jesus' death? Peter goes on to tell us in 1 Peter 2 that we are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to be his very own so that we can proclaim the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. This evening, are we God's people? Not all 12 around that table on that evening were his people. Are we delivered and redeemed the place to start? Do we count ourselves as God's own people, recognizing that we are bought with a price and so trusting in him? As God's own people over the next few days,
will we be those who gather around the cross? Will we be those who rejoice at the empty tomb? Will we be those who are filled with the Spirit at Pentecost? Will we go into all the world so that the world may believe? Amen.